And good morning, church. It's good to see you, to be together, to come around, not only the communion table, which is the centerpiece for us for every day as we come around God's Word, but also as we come around His Word this morning. In his book, Wild Goose Chase, love the title, Mark Batterson speaks from personal experience about entering in his first triathlon. And he says, I learned an important lesson when running my first triathlon. I did all my training for the swim leg of the race in a pool. And my times were fantastic. But the Atlantic Ocean is no pool. I was confident, though, going into the race. And so on the opening swim leg, I sprinted from the beach to the first buoy. I wanted to be at the front of the pack so I didn't have to embarrass everybody else by swimming past them. That's just the kind of guy I am, he says. He goes on, well, let's just say that the ocean ate my lunch. Or more accurately, I drank the ocean. It's amazing what a couple of gallons of salt water will do to your stomach. And my wife, Laura, who saw me afterwards, said, I look like a dazed boxer when I finally hit the beach. And she was being kind. He says, I started so fast that I couldn't catch my breath the rest of the swim. And I'm embarrassed to say that I ended up doing the backstroke instead of freestyle for much of the swim leg. And I learned an important lesson. How you start is not nearly as important as how you finish. How you start is not nearly as important as how you finish. And that's really our main lesson for today as we close out our sermon series on church awakening. We have looked at seven passages in 1 Corinthians, and in essence, this letter written by the Apostle Paul under the superintending hand of God was a call for the church to wake up. The church in Corinth was marked by division, and immorality, lawsuits, and doctrinal confusion. And this sharp letter was meant to launch these believers out of their comfortable seats so they could still have a good finish. And it's a call to the church today. It's a call to us here at Evangelical Baptist Church. Now, as I said in an earlier sermon, the purpose of choosing this troubled church, riddled with problems of their own making, was not so that we might feel better about ourselves through comparison. Rather, it's to serve as a, a mirror to see where any erosion has slipped into our lives, any erosion that has slipped into our church. It's a warning to us of the dangers of any spiritual slippage. Now, if you were to go through, if we were to go through the entire uh, book of 1 Corinthians, we would see that the first um, uh, that 14 of the 16 chapters were written to straighten out their wrong behavior. And in one chapter, chapter 15, it was written to straighten out their bad theology. Well, now in chapter 16, he'll close things out. Now, how do you wrap up a book like this? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. So look with me, if you're not there, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I'll have you know, uh, whether it matters to you or not, I'm going to share it with you, that at the beginning of the week, we're, I was going to do 1 Corinthians 13, 
And then by the middle of the week, I was going to do 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then I was led to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now, chapter 16, as I was reading it, is sort of a PS to what he's written for 15 chapters. They aren't any less important or less inspired than what came previously, but it made up, uh, it's made up of a little of this and a little of that. And chapter 16, to me anyway, felt a little anticlimactic of what he just wrote and talked about in chapter 15 on the resurrection and the transformation of our bodies. And then he has this chapter 16. So I want to go back to chapter 15, verse 58, just for a moment. I want to read this, because we, there we have the great therefore. Verse 58, chapter 15, therefore... My dear brothers, my dear sisters, church, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I look at that and I say, that's where he should have ended. Little I know. Since Christ is risen, since we're, we wait this great anticipation for the transformation of our physical bodies, it tells us to thrive in, in doing the Lord's work. We're to persevere in doing what we believe we must do. Our efforts will not go unnoticed by an all-knowing God. Oh, the great therefore ought to be the greatest motivator for finishing well. It seems like that's where he should have ended. Then Paul follows up on that, chapter 16, with some practical words about giving. He makes some personal requests, and then he ends with some final greetings. But sandwiched in all of that are two verses, two verses, chapter 16, that I want to finish with this morning, verses 13 and 14. Two verses, short passage, but it is loaded. It is a high-impact passage. These two verses have been called by some principles for powerful living. Another pastor called it basic instructions for Christian living. I'm calling it five essentials for a good finish. Five essentials for a good finish. And so have your eyes locked in there on, on verse 13 and 14 of, of 1 Corinthians 16. In these two verses, you'll see that there are a series of commands. They're all verbs of continuous action, they're all in present tense. So as a church, we need to continually be doing these things in order to have a good finish. Now my, my outline this morning comes right out of the passage, meaning I'm taking the words right from here. And so the first heading for this morning is be on your guard. The first imperative, first essential for finishing well is be on your guard. It's the first phrase there in verse 13, as the NIV has it. It's only one word in the original. Uh, it really means wake up, and it can be used in the physical sense to be awake as opposed to being asleep. But it can also be used in the spiritual sense of waking up and being alert, being on guard. And obviously here, it's of spiritual awaking. He's calling them, he's calling us to wake up. Now, why is staying awake and being on guard critical to the times in which we live? Well, church, this is no time to check our brains at the door. This is no time to bury our heads in the sand to ignore what's going on around us. Now, this doesn't mean 
That we, we ought to obsess on the news stories and, and spend all of our waking hours hunting down evidence that supports our positions and views. But I do ask, how aware are you of the realities of what's going on around us? It's been said that there are three people in the world. One, those who make things happen. Two, those who watch things happen. And three, those who have no idea what's happening. Which one are you? Church, there's no time to check out, to let down our guard. So I ask, have you let down your guard? Have you let some things slip in your walk with Christ? Are you doing something today that you said you would never do? Or, or, or have you been kind of okay with a certain behavior in your life that you know is a dangerous compromise? You see, perhaps the most dangerous sins aren't those that would bring public shame, but those you can carry into this room this morning without anyone noticing what's going on. I ask you, has God been speaking to you about coming awake to guarding against some subtle influence and subtle sins in your life? See, we need to pay attention to what's coming our way. I'm sure you've all seen the well-trained guards who stand at Buckingham Palace. They look straight ahead, unflinching, a discipline to not even crack a smile, and, and others have tried to come and make them laugh, and, and it doesn't work. They're just straight, they're, they're locked in. They understand their jobs, and it's to guard the palace. And to look at them from the outside, it would appear that they have it all under control. Well, back in 1982, Queen Elizabeth II was awakened in the night to find a man sitting on the end of her bed, and it wasn't Prince Philip. On the outside of the palace, everything appeared to be going fine. It seemed the guarding issue was under control, yet there was a man inside the palace, inside the queen's bedroom, sitting on the edge of her bed, wanting to engage her in a conversation there in the middle of the night. Well, as a 33-year-old, London-born, unemployed man had somehow managed to stay undetected through the palace security, becoming the, the best-known Buckingham Palace intruder. Apparently, it wasn't his first time he'd broken into the palace. Now, it wasn't some elaborate plan on this intruder's part to get inside. It was just simply a matter of the guards letting down their guards. How about you? How about me? How about guarding your life and, and guarding your family? I mean, you may give the impression this morning that you're on guard, that on the outside it may look like you have it all under control, but, but if only others could see the inside of your life and the inside of your thought process, the inside of those trips you make to the store or your time away on business or those late hours at work, it may tell another story. But listen, if we're to have a good finish, if we're to thrive in living for Him to the end, if we're to make it through this week, it all starts with guardedness. Do you realize that in one unguarded moment, you could deny Jesus like, like, like Peter did? I don't know the man. Do, do you realize that in one unguarded moment, you could be unfaithful to your spouse? 
Do you know that in one unguarded moment, you could throw your career out the window? I mean, it's sobering to think, is it not, that in one unguarded moment, we could damage our reputation. That in one unguarded moment, we could lose the respect of our children and of others. I always cringe when I hear someone say, oh, that will never happen to me. When you are unaware of how vulnerable you are, you are the most vulnerable. Let me say that again. When you are unaware of how vulnerable you are, you are the most vulnerable. Or as Oswald Chambers said, he makes this observation, the Bible characters never fell on their weak points, but on their strong ones. Unguarded strength is a double weakness. So take a look and go, oh, this is my strength. Sure, pay attention to that because an unguarded strength will be a double weakness, whatever that is for you. Isn't there what Paul said earlier in, this, in, in, in another chapter, in chapter 10? So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you what? Don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Be careful. A good finish demands that we be on guard. Secondly, we must stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Now, I want you to notice something here, that it doesn't say stand firm in our faith. No, it says stand firm in the faith. That's significant. Well, what's the difference? Let me give you an example. Michael Horton was uh, anxiously anticipating the uh, uh, quite uh, premature delivery of his triplets. And he says, I'll never forget the moment that the doctor looked at me and announced, they're all alive. It was not a foregone gone conclusion, at least for, any, for one of them. And until that report, my wife and I were in suspense. We were anxious. He says, all of the wishful thinking, even from certified medical profession, professionals, could not alleviate that suspense, turning possibility into actuality. I mean, I could believe all I wanted, he said, in a successful delivery. But I had no promise to rely on, either from God or the doctors, and the intensity of my believing it had nothing to do with the state of affairs, the outcome. He says, my confidence developed entirely on the words the doctor uttered, because faith does not make something true, but embraces the truth. And some of you say, oh, I just got to believe it. I got to just have all this faith and it will happen. No, that's not going to get you anywhere. Don't stand on that. No, no, it's the content of the truth that you're to stake your life on. And so when battles come, and they will, it won't matter how much faith you can muster up that's going to sustain you. You'll be standing firm in the truth of God's Word. So when life, when it feels like life around you is falling apart, isn't it good to know that you have something secure to stand on? Is what you're standing on able to weather the storms in your life or the storms that may come? What are you standing on? During the, the War of 1812, Gen General Andrew Jackson, with more than 2,000 men, fought the decisive battle of New Orleans. The fighting took its toll on Jackson's troops, but sickness proved to be the deadliest and most dangerous enemy. 150 soldiers became gravely ill, 56 of whom could not even stand. Dr. Samuel Hogg asked the general what he wanted him to do. 
To do, sir, Jackson answered, you are not to leave a man on the ground. It wasn't official code of conduct yet, but Jackson embodied the military model, leave no man behind. Andrew Jackson ordered his officers to give up their horses to those who were sick, and the general was the first to do so. And Jackson marched 531 miles on foot. Andrew Jackson, who later became uh, the seventh uh, uh, president of the United States, is alleged to have fought as many as 13 duels, which explains the 37 pistols in his gun collection. It reveals something about Jackson's character. Old Hickory wasn't one to shrink from a fight, especially when honor was at stake. And Jackson says this about himself. I was born for the storm, and the calm does not suit me. I was born for the storm, and the calm does not suit me. You see, when, when the sea is calm, anyone can captain the ship in that situation. But when a perfect storm threatens to capsize your ship, he's saying a true man doesn't sit back. He steps up and steps in. He fights the good fight, even when it seems like all is lost. Why? Because a true man, a true woman, is born for the storm. Are you born for the storm? Can you weather what's going to come your way? Is EBC born for the storm? Because there will be storms. Storms come in a variety of ways. But are you ready for the battle? What do you have in place that can withstand the storm? Because when a storm threatens to capsize your marriage or drown your dreams, you must stand firm. The time to resolve the standing firm is before the next battle hits. So what are you presently doing to prepare yourself for the next battle? Now, when Paul wrote this letter, the Corinthian church was losing this battle. They were losing in the truth of the gospel. They were adopting the things of this world. They were denying the resurrection of the dead. They were fighting with each other. They were elevating one leader over another. They were taking each other to the court. They were tolerating sexual immorality because their feet were planted where? In midair. They were not on solid ground. How about you? Are you standing firm in the faith? Are your feet planted on solid grounds? It's going to be necessary for a good finish. Thirdly, thirdly, we ought to be courageous. Be courageous. Now, this third phrase is not easy to translate. The NIV translates it, be men of courage. The King James Version doesn't really help us. It says, quit you like men. And others translate it, act like men or play the man. Now, this isn't a call for men to be macho or imply that this isn't a command for women. It's one word in the original, and it's the only place in the New Testament that this word appears. But in other Greek literature and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word simply means to act in a courageous way. That's why I'm going with be courageous. Essentially, it means man up, grow up. The idea is start acting like an adult rather than a child. And for the church in Corinth, they need to set aside their childish ways of whining and complaining and, and wallowing in their infantile mantra of me, me, me. And if they were to have a good finish, they would need to put childish ways behind them, as Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 13. You see, physically, as we grow to adulthood, 
We should become less fearful and more courageous. Well, spiritually speaking, that also should be true. The more we grow in the Lord, there's supposed to be an unflinching courage about us. Courage. This is how I'm going to define courage. Courage is the bridge between good intentions and action. Courage is the bridge between good intentions and actions. You see, you can be aware of what you need to do to change, but you won't change if you don't have the courage to turn that action into, turn that intention into action. Adult thought. Adult thought. I remember back many years ago, I'd drive past this house that in the driveway was this uh, souped up, a Chevy Camaro Z28. I mean, it was a beauty. People would always slow down to look at this car parked in the driveway as they drove by. And I, I was only about two miles from where I lived, so I went by it a lot. But here's the thing. From my perspective, I never saw it really leave his driveway. I never saw it around town. If it was, I never saw it around town. He was always sitting parked in his driveway. He was always working on it. I mean, it looked nice, but it never seemed to go anywhere. And I thought, that's what it's like to not have courage to transform your beliefs into action. It's like that Camaro. It looks nice in the driveway, but you haven't got what it takes to get somewhere. Courage moves you from the kingdom of niceness to the kingdom of God. So, what step of courage do you need to take right now? I don't care what your intentions are. I don't care what your, your ideas are. I don't care what your beliefs are. What step of courage do you need to take right now to move that to action? Where do you need to, to man up, adult up, and move that idea into a growth step for you? Because church, you cannot have a good finish without courage. We're going to need courage in the days ahead. Which goes right along with the next one here, be strong. Be strong, our fourth imperative here, be strong. Now, many commentators link these two phrases together so that it's be strong and courageous. Yeah, where have we heard that one before? Joshua 1.9. God says to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You might be here today, you say, well, I don't, I don't really feel very strong, Pastor. Well, where does our strength come from? Well, in Colossians 1.11, Paul prays for the church. And he says that you will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. In Ephesians 3.16, it speaks of being strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person. We're told in Philippians 4.13, a verse we just love to rip out of context. I'm not going to get into that. But the point there, he says, through Christ who strengthens me. So this isn't something we can do ourselves. The strength to face life's challenges and to persevere to the end comes from the Lord, not from ourselves. All right? Then you ask, well, we're commanded here to be strong. Well, how do we do that if it's something that happens to us? I'm glad you asked. It means, first and foremost, we must admit weakness. We must admit weakness. We, miss, we must sense a real need in our lives for God to do something in us. It means we need to quit leaning on all these props 
in order just to look the part, to give the impression we're doing better than we are, and humbly acknowledge our need for him. Oh, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Not this, I've got this. I'm all set. No. If we're going to be strong in the Lord, we're going to have to recognize and be aware of how much we need him. And some of you are here this morning, and you won't admit that you need him. You're going, I've got this. God, that's for, that's for other people. I don't need God. Some of you would rather risk giving in to some temptation than to ask others to pray for you to be strengthened. Because you don't want to expose your weakness. Some of you are content just to stay where you're at rather than surrender to God and see what God can do in you and through you as he strengthens you. Where do you need to, this morning, go, I need God here. I need his strength here because I am weak. Because if you're going to have a good finish, it will require self-awareness of how much you need him to make it each day, to make it to the end. Be on guard. Stand firm. Be strong and courageous. But it doesn't end there. There's one more imperative, one more essential for having a good finish. Now, we might view this last phrase as kind of wrapping around all the others. You find it in verse 14, do everything in love. In church, the word everything in the original is everything. You can't get around it. But you see how important this is? It's possible to be guarded, to stand firm, to be strong and courageous and do it all in some kind of military-like way. You know, kind of grit your teeth. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Take, take the world on in some combative demeanor. And Paul adds here, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Do everything in love. All of it. Not easy to do. I'm sure you agree with the one who said, to live above with those we love, oh, how that will be glory. To live below with those we know, now that's another story. <laughs> right? But church, this is a must. We have to have this. If we're alert and guarded but have not love, we will be suspicious and narrow. If we stand firm without love, we will be intolerant, rigid, and preachy. If we're courageous without love, we will be harsh and critical. If we're strong without love, we will lack tenderness and compassion. And so while we fight for the truth, we must do so in love. While we disagree in the church, we must do so in love. When we use our gifts in the body, we must do so in love, or else it's nothing more than what? A clanging symbol, as chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians says. All right, here's your homework assignment. I know, kids out of school are going, I don't want homework. All right, here's your homework assignment. Here it is. Read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this week. Maybe read it through every single day. It's only 13 verses. It will take less than two minutes to read, even if you read it very slowly. Less than two minutes. Now, if you want to go one step further, when, when love is described there in verse 4 through 8, pause and ask yourself, does this describe me? How much of this is true? Love is patient. How am I doing there? Love is kind. How am I doing there? Stop and do that. You get extra credit for that one. All right. 1 Corinthians 13. 
Thought I was going to preach on it. God had other ideas. It's known as the love chapter, right? It's commonly read during wedding ceremonies. Fine. But its primary intended audience was the church. The church, followers of Jesus Christ, ought to be characterized by what's described there in 1 Corinthians 13. By a selfless, sacrificial love that permeates everything we do. Do everything in love. Alistair Begg, he speaks of his introduction to living in this country after moving here from London. And he mentions one thing that he never understood is how in restaurants people would say to their waiter and waitresses, may I have that on the side, please? <laughs> he said, you don't do that in Britain. What you get is what you get. Nothing on the side thing. And we do it all the time, right? May I have salad dressing on the side, please? May I have that gravy on the side, please? Right? And of course, the way I eat, not wanting anything to touch. <laughs> I'm asking that all the time. Can you put my pancakes on the side, please? Fries, separate plate on the side, please. I mean, I drive waitresses nuts with that. Listen, we can't have love on the side. I'm just going over here, if I get to it, maybe. Just put it over here. No. No, love must permeate everything we do. Anyone who walks in this room as a guest, as a visitor, on any given Sunday shouldn't have to look hard to find love in this place. Our love for each other must fill the room. Does it? Does our love permeate everything we do? Is love flooding our communities and our workplaces and our families, wherever we're going to go this week? Love on the side won't cut it. Do everything in love. I know that's challenging. I know that's challenging. This entire series has been difficult to swallow at times. Because it's been a call to renewal, to change, to stand with Jesus in building his church. Because church, we must not fall asleep at the wheel. I urge you, and three fingers are pointing back at me, to see if there's any drifting in your life. Any drifting in your life and in my life. I must look at that. Because God wants the best for our church. And how you start is not nearly as important as how you finish. And the Corinthians were not off to a great start. They thought they were. They thought they were wise. They thought they were spiritual. They thought they were gifted. And even though this church was off to a bad start, God intervenes and through Paul writes them a letter. Now, I wish I could tell you, I wish I could tell you that the church in Corinth woke up. But if you were to read through the second letter to this church, 2 Corinthians, through chapter 13, you would see that things had gotten much worse. You find them rejecting Paul and, his, and, and Paul's apostolic authority. I mean, it gets so bad that the last chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul challenges them to examine themselves to see if they are even in the faith. That's how bad it got. Not a good ending for the church in Corinth. But it didn't have to be the case. Because God intervened. 
He wrote this letter because he loved them and he wanted the best for them. He wants them to have a good finish. He wants you to have a good finish. All right. How is our time over the last eight weeks spoken to you about church awakening? What do you need to continue to do? And where do you need to make some corrections? Even ask, what would it take to provoke change in you? What's it going to take? Because you're stubbornly holding on. Are you sitting and waiting for one of those need-to-grow moments when everything falls apart in your life and, and, and you go to, you know, where it's the worst that it can possibly be? It doesn't have to go there. It doesn't. Are you going to wait for that? Danny Cox, a former jet pilot turned business leader, he tells his readers and sees the day that when jet fighters were first invented, they flew much faster than their propeller predecessors. And so pilot ejection became more sophisticated process. Theoretically, of course, all a pilot needed to do in that kind of emergency was push a button, clear the plane, and then roll forward out of their seat so that the parachute would open up and they'd be safe. But there was a problem that popped up during testing. Some pilots, instead of letting go, would, take, would have a tight grip on the seat and say, I'm not going anywhere. And the parachute would then remain trapped between the seat and the pilot's back. And so the engineers went back to the drawing board and they came up with a solution. And Cox says this, the new design called for a two-inch webbed strap one end attached to the front edge of the seat under the pilot, the other end attached to an electronic take-up reel behind the headrest. And so two seconds after ejection, this electronic take-up reel would immediately take up the slack and propel, force the pilot forward out of his seat. He had no choice but to be pushed out, thus freeing the parachute. Bottom line, he says, Jet fighter pilots needed that device to launch them out of their chairs. I ask, what will it take to launch you out of yours? What will it take for us to live a life in which our transformation is absolutely convincing and contagious? I don't know where you're at today. You may be tired. You may wonder if it's worth it to continue in the race set before you. Maybe you're here this morning, you've had a terrible, lousy start. I don't know. But I do know this. God wants you to have a good finish. He wants you. He wants us to have a good finish. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time and in uh, Corinthians, and we only scratched the surface, but we thank you for what this time meant for us as we dug into this problem church and uh, we're forced to kind of reflect on ourselves. So God, take what is necessary from our study and from this morning that we would implement, not just think about and have some good ideas or intentions, but have the courage to translate those ideas into action.
Help us to do that. For God, we know, as we're going to sing right here, we, we're banking on, our feet are on the one who gives us living hope. And we thank you for Jesus who is that to us. And you want us to live lives that are filled of hope this week. Hope that we can have a good finish as we rely on your grace and power to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.